Welcome to the Choosing to Stay podcast. We're your hosts, Hallie Roderick and Stephanie Hamby, certified relationship and recovery coaches. We specialize in supporting couples who are healing from infidelity and betrayal. We invite you to join us each week as we explore the challenges and joys of the recovery journey for couples who are choosing to stay in a relationship after betrayal. We'll encourage you with hope for healing and transformation. Connection, empathy, growth, choosing to stay. Hallie and I would love to share with you opportunities to support you in your healing and recovery. These opportunities are open for registration at chooserecoveryservices.com. In October is Healing Hearts course for couples. This is a really great opportunity for couples in early recovery to learn relational skills and lots of education on healing and recovery. Some of the other outside resources that I offer through Choose Recovery Services, I have a Help Her Heal 12-week course for men who are working to reestablish trust and rebuild safety, develop empathy skills and shame resiliency. My next round is starting soon. If you want to jump in or put your name on a wait list for the next time I start. We also just recently started a betrayal trauma group for male partners. So if you're a male partner who is experiencing betrayal trauma, please don't try to walk this journey alone, but reach out and get in our support group. I also offer a free webinar on the second Sunday of every month for couples called Choosing to Stay After Infidelity and Betrayal. It's an open Q&A. I usually share a few recovery topics and then leave it open for discussion. So please join us. Check our show notes for information to register and get involved in those other options that we provide. Welcome to today's episode of the Choosing to Stay podcast. We're so excited today to welcome our special guest, Wes Burns. Wes is a polygraph examiner that lives and works in the Phoenix area, which is where I'm located. And I've had the opportunity to work with him on a disclosure that I did locally and had a really good experience with him. So we wanted to interview a polygraph examiner so that you, our audience can get the ins and outs of why it might be beneficial to include a polygraph and kind of how that works and what that looks like. Cause that can sound a little intimidating to a client if they've never heard of using a polygraph exam. Wes, would you just introduce yourself a little bit to our audience and tell us, get us started off with what your thoughts are on the polygraph exam? Absolutely. Thank you very much for the introduction. My name is Wes Burns. I'm a private polygraph examiner here just outside of Phoenix. I've been an examiner for about 22 years. I started my career as a police detective and as a police examiner, and I did that for a number of years. I've been in private practice since about 2007, and the bulk of what I do right now is actually clinical testing. Uh, I do a fair amount of work for attorney clients, the public defender's office, that kind of thing, but the majority involves a therapist, and these are clients that are on probation as well as private clients who are not on probation, who are in recovery, usually for some sort of sex addiction kind of thing. And... What I want to talk about first is just to give an overview of the polygraph and the protocol, and this will be brief because a lot of this information is online, but a lot of it, when you talk about online information, a lot of it is of questionable sources. So the polygraph is actually an instrument. It's a measuring device. It's designed to measure changes that happen in a person's body when they lie. Lying is a choice. You cannot lie on accident or about anything you don't know or anything you've forgotten. People lie because of shame or embarrassment or out of fear of a consequence. Either way, it is a choice. The number one question I get from clients is, I'm a little nervous. Will that make me look like I'm lying? And the answer is an easy no. Nervousness is not a lie. Sheep is not a cow. They both live on the farm, not the same animal. Uh, I've actually taken these tests as a former law enforcement officer, so I know exactly what it's like to sit in the big chair 
and everyone is nervous. It doesn't matter if it's your first polygraph or your 20th. And yes, I've had clients who have had as many as 20 over the course of their lives for any number of reasons. But either way, nervousness won't affect a thing. Uh, when the client comes in, we go over their medical background to make sure there's not going to be anything medically that might interfere with testing. Some medications or medical conditions can interfere with testing. That's pretty rare though. If I review that with a client, give them an overview of the polygraph, the protocol. It's a very straightforward process. When a client comes in, I like to say it's done in a very clinical fashion. It is not a police third degree. People have seen Meet the Parents and Dr. Phil, and uh, there's a lot of things out there that are really inaccurate in terms of how the polygraph should be run. So I run it as a very detailed, structured interview uh, with about a 20-minute polygraph at the end. When the client does take the test, all of the questions are reviewed with the client beforehand so they know exactly what's coming. Uh, and there's a very brief practice test that's included in the protocol. During the test, I'm not set up to actually show you my office, but there's four sensors that a client wears on their body during the test, two very high on their chest and one around their stomach that measures muscle movement in their upper body. We can see respiration, respiration pattern, that kind of thing. Blood pressure cuff that monitors changes in pulse and blood volume, uh, not so much blood pressure per se and two metal tabs that are worn on the fingers of the right hand that measure electric chemical resistance in the skin associated with a sweat response. There are some other optional sensors, but those are the core sensors that are used during polygraph testing. And when I scheduled the initial disclosure meeting with clients, and I've done actually several thousands of these, it's a four-hour appointment. So the bulk of that four hours is, you know, say three, three and a half, is a very detailed, structured interview that covers all manners of sexual behaviors throughout the client's life with an emphasis on behaviors that have happened during the course of a relationship or marriage. I'd say 99% of my clients are men and 99% of my clients are married. You know, I do have clients that are not married. I even have clients that are actually divorced and, and still come in and they use a polygraph as part of their recovery plan. In terms of how should a person who's had sexual misbehaviors prepare for a polygraph? Well, working with a clinician or a treatment provider is the first step. I get calls literally every day from people wanting to drag their loved one in and throw them on the polygraph. And they think the polygraph is going to solve their problems, and it does not. Uh, I actually require that there is a therapist in place to receive the written report and to prep the client for the test. Like I said, I'm a firm believer that you know, polygraph utility can be very significant. It can be very helpful, but it is not, you know, the panacea, the problem solver and dragging your loved one in, it's not going to solve the problem. Get a therapist involved, but that's the very first step. The second thing that's very helpful in terms of preparation is involvement in some sort of a recovery program. SAA, Celebrate Recovery, ARP through some of the churches are a good start for that. And by going and participating in those processes in those programs, that is an indirect way to prep for the polygraph. Some of the clients will author a sexual history disclosure statement or a sexual history timeline, and those work products can be very helpful. Not everybody prepares one of those, but if they have them, I always encourage them to bring them in. It's open book, open note. When the client comes in and reviews their sexual history, it is not a police third degree. I want to emphasize that. Uh, it's a very detailed, structured interview. Now, to say the police third degree, yes, some polygraph examiners treat everybody who walks in the door like a suspect. So bedside manner, in my esteem, is critical because we want the client to do well. We want them to pass at the expense of the truth. We want to get all the information out so that recovery can move forward. And that's the whole goal. So we, we want everybody to do well. And I would say I most clients actually do well. 
that's good to highlight because I think some of our clients who are preparing the disclosure statement feel like they're going in as a suspect and it feels really intimidating to them. So I love to hear you say that I have a really good bedside manner and I'm not treating them like a criminal. We're just going through this process to really support the relationship for the spouse to know whether they can choose to stay with whatever the information that comes forth on the disclosure. So I love to hear that you have that bedside manner and that's important for you. Cause I think that's important for me when I'm looking for a polygraph examiner to support us is we don't want them to feel like a criminal. Right. Absolutely. And I routinely describe the process to the client when they come in as a collaboration you know, I'm working with them basically to get them through the polygraph at the expense of the truth. And like I said, most of my clients do well, but, you know, occasionally they don't. They choose to keep secrets and it's regrettable. But, you know, understanding the dynamics of the situation that a lot of them are in, you know, I understand. But, you know, on the flip side, if they really want help in terms of recovery and to repair the relationship that might have been damaged through sexual misbehaviors, pornography use, infidelity, that kind of thing, then they need to be committed. And the polygraph is an opportunity to illustrate their own commitment to their own success in recovery and in choosing to stay. One other thing that I want to highlight that you said is that it's a four-hour process and only about 30 minutes of it is the actual polygraph exam. And you mentioned the disclosure document because all of the clients that would come from us have already prepared a disclosure document. And so you're using that and going over the information in that to help them prepare to, to pass the polygraph exam, correct? Yes, in a manner of speaking. So I have a structured interview that I've developed over the course of many years working with treatment providers actually all over the country. So everyone gets the same interview. The interview covers all manners of sexual behaviors, masturbation, pornography, online behaviors, sexual contacts of any and every kind, paraphilic behaviors, drinking, drugs. I mean, if you can imagine it, I am probably going to ask. And that is without any input from the clinician or from the spouse. Some of the spouses are very intimidated by the process or I'm going to say terrified. They really don't want to get involved in the polygraph. And so I'd say about half the time, it's just my training and experience. When I get through the interview with a client, I know exactly what to put on the client's test based on what they've admitted to or denied during the course of that exhaustive interview. But having the disclosure statement is, is routinely helpful because that way I can focus on things that otherwise I might, you know, kind of be glossing over, especially if client is struggling with something very specific, you know, a paraphilic behavior, for, for example, you know, like voyeurism or exhibitionism, some, something that I would ask about, but if they have an extensive history of that, or if it's associated with their circumstance, then that way with the disclosure statement, I can spend more time on it in the interview. So another question that often comes up with the betrayed partners is they have in their mind a list of questions that they want you to ask on the polygraph. So how do you handle that when you have a spouse, a betrayed partner that says, I need to know these things on the polygraph? That's a terrific question. So I do interact with a lot of the spouses. Like I said, about half will reach out to me before the polygraph and I'll give them an overview of the polygraph and the protocol and an overview of the very distinct limitations of the process. So as we've discussed in the polygraph, where there's actually the client sitting in the chair answering the questions may only take 18, 20 minutes-ish, but the polygraph has a lot of limitations. The testing format that I use is the same testing format that I would use for a court case. So it's very good at what it does, but there's not two, three, 400 questions that are asked. We are actually asking 
routinely 10 to 12 questions, all answered yes or no. And out of those 10 to 12, we can only score or evaluate three or four. So what we have to do is, you know, using judgment here, we test on the most important things. Hands-on infidelity, I would say with some confidence that 100% of the tests that I administer have some sort of hands-on infidelity question on the test. Some of the clients have a significant history of that during the course of their marriages or relationships. Some have zero. Well, the clients that have zero or have admitted to zero, that is your best test. We like to test against confidence and denial. Those two aspects need to be in place when a polygraph question is presented. How sure the client is that something generally has not happened. And so if they're very, very sure, then that increases polygraph accuracy. When clients come in and say they've had 100 partners during the course of their marriage, then, you know, I'm not going to ask, are you sure it wasn't 101? I mean, that would be a bit unreasonable. And there's going to be a lack of confidence there. And then the client may not do well. So when that happens, what we can test on is when the last hands-on acting out incident was, which is routinely very important as well. So if the client says the last time was January 1st of this year, we can test against that. So uh, when we develop the questions, the questions also need to be very distinct, memorable behaviors over a period of time. We cannot ask questions about thoughts, feelings, fantasies, or emotions. That is one of the most common questions that I get from the spouses when I interact with them is they want to know, does their husband lust after other women? Does, does the husband love the wife? You know, those are very common questions and we cannot address those because those are state of mind. So we really stay away from that. So the more distinct and memorable the behavior is, the more likely it is that we can address it on the test. And when I interact with the spouses, I encourage them to send over questions. So they can send me questions by email. I uh, usually suggest 10 to 20 that I can tack on and add into the interview. And very routinely, the questions that the spouses send over are already asked. So I tell them if they have questions about specific incidents or events or specific people, that those are probably best because those would not otherwise be covered directly in the interview because it's fairly broad. So knowing that information ahead of time is also very, very helpful, especially if there have been named affair partners. I can discuss that with the client in detail and document that in the report. And speaking of the report, this is important. Uh, I only release my written reports to treatment providers. So my written reports generally range from seven to 12 pages long. And I turn those around within one to two business days generally, and those go right to the treatment provider. The spouse gets the debrief of the polygraph in session with a therapist. We've had cases where the spouse has got a hold of the polygraph reports and were traumatized by what they read. I'm aware of even one case where a client was hospitalized for suicidal ideations after she was so traumatized by what she would read in a polygraph report that Ironically, she had stolen from the therapist's office. So I don't give it to the client either. I'll tell the client how, how he did usually, you know, like I said, most of my clients are men, how he did after the test. So whether it's truthful or untruthful, there's also a possibility of an inconclusive or a no opinion outcome. Those outcomes are, are uncommon, but they do occur. So they get the verbal at the end of the interview, and then the debrief is done in session with a therapist. The question that we get a lot of times too is how effective or how accurate are the results of a polygraph? So if you get an, an inconsistent, what does that mean? And then what is the accuracy of those polygraph exams? Yeah, so let's talk about the, the four basic conclusions of a polygraph test. We have the two most obvious, which are truthful or untruthful. Inconclusive 
uh, is basically a safety mechanism. Uh, when I evaluate the test data, uh, I do that in a, a standardized old fashioned method of just looking at the wavy lines. Uh, and then there's also computer algorithms that I'll use to also analyze the data because the computer can see things that I can't see with my eyes perhaps. But an inconclusive basically means that the test data was usable. It looked good, but it didn't point to either a truthful person or an untruthful person. It basically loitered in the middle. And that is a safety mechanism that reduces the likelihood that we would label a, a truthful person untruthful or vice versa. A no opinion test it basically means the data looks bad. It's unusable. It's messy. The client moved a lot during the test, or there was something that interfered with the, the data quality that really just made it unusable. So those are the, the outcomes. And in terms of accuracy, the more questions that we ask on the test, the less accurate the test is. So every time you add a question, the error rate goes up, the accuracy goes down. So in a perfect world, we would be doing what are called single issue tests. Specific issue tests, sometimes they're called specific issue tests as well. Specific issue tests is testing against a known event like a bank robbery. So we know the bank was robbed and now we're testing the person to see if they did that activity. A single issue test is exploratory in nature. And when we do these disclosure tests, they are exploratory tests. We are testing against an unknown. We're testing against something that we don't know if it really happened or not. For example, uh, the infidelity question. You know, the, Some of the clients hey, come in and they have pornography challenges but they have not had any hands-on uh, acting out with any other person. And that we're, we don't know if that's happened or not. So we're testing against that. So I would say that 80 to 90% is, is a good accuracy rate. Uh, and that's based on research. So nothing is 100%. And so there are always risks. And I always tell the clients and the spouses that. So it's something that you don't want to run in, think a polygraph's going to you know, save the day, uh, but it can have utility, it can have value. But like I said, there's always risks uh, when you take these tests. This is so good. I love in the beginning, you said that lying is a choice. And so that's the way that you initiate the polygraph and, and all that. So that's really great that you pointed that out. So as the therapist is helping create these questions that go towards the polygraph, and I'm assuming you also have much of an input on the way those questions are asked or the spouse, either way, the questions that come in on the polygraph test, you said that they need to be distinctive, memorable moment or behavior. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that because what I see a lot with my clients is exactly what you were talking about. You touched on it a little bit, how they want questions that are related to like emotional or feelings or lust or those type of questions. So can you give an example or a couple examples of what that looks like? Yeah, sure. So this is right in the ballpark of the question that you raised is that the absolute number one question I get from either treatment providers or from the spouses is, you know, my husband has this 90 page disclosure statement. I want to know if he's been absolutely truthful in that. And, and so that is a very old school polygraph approach. There was a time when that was uh, acceptable and if not routine, uh, it's called a statement verification test. There are a lot of rules regarding that. And, and so I, I think over the years, examiners have really just wanted to appease the clients and say, oh, sure, we can, we can test on that. We can test on this 90-page document, which in my esteem is completely unreasonable. We're covering who knows how many behaviors, how many incidents. And when the disclosure statement covers a lot of things, 
it really erodes confidence. So there we are back to, to confidence and denial. So, and then if the client is found untruthful, you know, did you lie in this 90 page document? We don't know what they've lied about. It's just that there's maybe perhaps something missing or the client's not sure of something. And so we want to avoid that. There are examiners today that still do that. They will test on the veracity of the client's disclosure statement or sexual history. And I do not do that. So, and, and this is in line with best practices. And I don't want to go too far from the path. Best practices through the American Polygraph Association for post-conviction sex offender testing. For clients that are on probation for a sex offense, there are established protocols for testing clients who are in that predicament. And that model policy mirrors what I do in a lot of ways when I work with clients who are not on probation for sex-related behaviors. I actually sat on the committee that established the, that model policy in about 2008. It's been changed a number of times since then, uh, so I'm pretty familiar with it. Um, but it, it can be very, very helpful in terms of laying down a, an approach uh, that is going to be helpful in terms of the information that we get and the testing protocol, because like I said, we want the clients to do well at the expense of the truth. And in terms of the other part of the question that you'd asked about distinct memorable behaviors, you know, so like I said, we want to stay away from very broad generalizations. You know, do you have secrets from your wife? Do you have, have you lied in this document? So there are a lot of uh, rules regarding polygraph question construction. And so some of the spouses, when they submit questions to me, they'll get really wrapped around the axle on, you know, language. And, and it, some, so sometimes it looks like a lawyer has written the questions that can be incredibly verbose and to, to, because they want to cover a lot of things in a single question. And I tell the spouses when I interact with them, I, I say, you know what, just plain language. You write the question identify the issue, and then if I can include that question in the test, then I will amend it to make it polygraph friendly. So there are, like I said, a lot of rules on polygraph question construction. And since we're talking about that, uh, in terms of my interaction with the spouses, the spouses can get very, very stressed over the polygraph protocol. And so it, it's just, I can't emphasize this enough that for the tree provider who's working with a spouse who's been betrayed and who's in recovery, I see it all the time. As we get closer and closer to polygraph day, uh, the spouses can get really super anxious, super emotional, much more emotional uh, or anxious than the clients. Even though the client, uh, usually the husband, is taking the test, uh, the wife can sometimes be a nervous wreck. Uh, so in terms of self-care, I, I tell them that when I talk to them by phone. I was like, if you're feeling anxious, make sure you reach out to someone, uh, you know, a treatment provider or, or a peer or a loved one, you know, come polygraph day. And because a lot of them are feeling super anxious and emotional regarding the protocol. I think that just goes right along with what we've talked about in our last previous two episodes about the importance of having professional support when you're going to go through this disclosure process, because Stephanie and I typically support the betrayed spouses in this process. And it's true. I mean, they're dealing with betrayal trauma. And usually when we get to the point where we're ready to have a disclosure and a polygraph, Hopefully they've been working with us or a therapist or a support person for an extended period of time and they feel like they have a good support system in place. And so I appreciate you pointing that out that it's because we've emphasized that on our last two episodes that it's really important to have professional support through all of this. Absolutely. So sometimes in the safety plan going forward after a polygraph, a betrayed spouse will request that they have periodic follow-up polygraph exams, just to verify that they're, you know, continuing in their recovery. 
How often do you see that? And do you see a benefit of that? Or what's your opinion on that? Yeah, so those periodic exams have a name. They're called maintenance exams. I do them routinely. They uh, can be incredibly helpful, especially when the client has embraced that as part of the recovery plan. The client knows a polygraph is going to be taken for perhaps six months after the initial meeting. That helps him to make better choices, helps him to report slip-ups as required, all in the interest of you know promoting honesty and recovery. And, and I do those tests routinely. And when the client really embraces that as a component of the recovery, the utility is is very, very good. And it also you know reassures the spouse uh, about the client's investment uh, in recovery. So, uh, yes, it, it can be very, very helpful. The protocol is very much the same. It's a structured interview. Uh, generally, is about two hours instead of four. And the spouses can contribute as well. If they have questions or concerns, again, it's about specific incidents. But when we're doing a test like this, in my opinion, they tend to be more accurate than the, the sexual history exam because we're only covering perhaps a four to six month period of time. So clients will do this initial sexual history assessment. They'll come in for check-ins four to six months for maybe a year or two. So maybe they'll have three or four polygraphs over the course of a couple of years. And then if everything is going great, uh, they start to spread them out. And so I, and I routinely promote that. I suggest, hey, let's spread these out. They shouldn't be longer than a year, but you know, six, nine, 12 months is, is a good timeline where the client can come in. Uh, and uh, we talk about basically what's been going on in recovery, what they've done right, their mistakes or slip-ups. And, and then the process is the same. I author a report that goes to the treatment provider. The spouse gets the debrief in session with uh, the clinician. Thank you for clarifying that and talking about that piece. So as we're sitting here talking to you, Wes, in my mind, I'm envisioning you as like another part of the support team that the person that has the sexual integrity issues can have on their team. Because I feel like this, a polygraph exam has this reputation or when you hear it, you think of it as like this interrogation and this terrible experience. But what I'm hearing from you is that you're actually, you actually create a safe space and you build some trust with the client before. So it actually can be even as uncomfortable as as it is, you try to make it a comfortable process for the client. Am I making that up in my mind or is that true? No, that's, I would agree that that is very much my approach. I do talk to clients who have had polygraphs elsewhere and I hear the most horrifying things you could ever even imagine in terms of, you know, I'm going to throw out bedside manner again or approach in cases where you know, when I meet with the clients, the, the spouse does not come. The client's going to be anxious enough, you know, without their spouse sitting in the lobby waiting or so occasionally I'll meet the spouses, but that's pretty rare. But I hear horrifying stories that the examiner was unkind, overbearing, discourteous, accusatory, really not invested in the success of the client. And so I I appreciate that because yes, my posture is I do see myself as a member of the support team. We want the client to do well. We want reunification. We want, you know, things to move forward and we want there to be recovery. And the polygraph should never, ever be rushed. I mean, I talk people out of the polygraph routinely, and I'm still booked out several weeks. So that's another thing. In terms of scheduling with me, people routinely call and say, hey, can I get a polygraph You know, tomorrow or this week or this weekend? And it's routinely three to eight weeks. So I liken it to my dentist. I can't see my dentist for six months because they're booked out. And similarly, I'm lucky and fortunate to uh, be in demand enough that, yes, it takes a few weeks to get in the door. And that goes back to the preparation requirement. So make sure before the client comes in, 
all the stakeholders need to be on the same page to know what you know the polygraph is, what we can and can't do. And the client needs to have that confidence that they are prepared. They've met with their therapist. If they're in the program like SAA, they've talked to their sponsor, they have peer support. You know, like I said, we want them to come in prepared so they can do great. When polygraph gets rushed, that's when we see unfavorable results because the client is not prepared. Okay. So I have one other question. What do you think, because our audience is couples that are choosing to stay after there's been some sort of sexual indiscretion and some of them participate in a formal disclosure and some of them do not. And so we're trying to give them some informed information, but from your position as a professional polygraph examiner, what do you think the benefits are of having the polygraph as part of the disclosure process? So from the spouse's perspective, I see that that can provide a sense of safety moving forward, especially when we talk about the periodic tests, you know, a sense that, you know, some reassurances perhaps that the client really is invested that yes, they're sorry, good people make poor choices along the road of life. And the, and the polygraph is an opportunity for them to really illustrate that they are invested and they are committed. Is it going to be, like I said, a, a cure-all? Is it going to answer all of the questions? No, and not at all. But over time, you know, the polygraph is a helpful tool and not, not all couples may need this. And it's very case by case, as I'm sure you're aware, but it is an option. And so some of the spouses want it and some do not. But uh, yes, I think overall it can be very, very helpful as long as the spouse really knows the limitations of the process. Yes, it can be a helpful tool, but it's not going to be able to answer every single question that the spouse might have. And so for the person that is preparing the disclosure that may have some apprehension towards doing a polygraph exam, is there benefit for them, would you say? Oh, absolutely. So I think that goes to the heart of what we talked about a bit ago is the opportunity that the client can really basically come in and bear their soul and say, hey, look, I have a, a problem with pornography addiction, sex addiction, or just making poor choices. And they really want to illustrate their commitment to their success and reassure all of the stakeholders. And that's not just their spouse. It's their treatment providers. It is their peers in the recovery program, their sponsors. Sometimes there's family members that are involved as well. And so that's where I see the utility as probably being the strongest. And that is with the client himself when he he is really committed to come in and, and do this. And I have clients that hate to say this, that I've seen for more than a decade that come in with some regularity and fly in from out of town to see me. Uh, They're in a recovery program and we just developed a relationship when they were usually here locally getting some sort of treatment and uh, they'll come back for some sort of follow-up with their local treatment provider or with their treatment provider here in the Phoenix area. And then they'll work in a polygraph as, as part of that. So yeah, that's where I see the value. I think most distinctly is with the client. That's great. So is there anything that we haven't asked or that you haven't brought up yet that you think our audience would want to know? So there are some baseline questions, you know, is your true name Wes Burns kind of things, things that just gives us some baseline data. But when we talk about the scored questions, again, and this is probably worth revisiting, we, we want to test against the most important things. And so when we address the, the specific issues, so during the course of your marriage, have you had physical sexual contact with anyone you've not told me about? Again, that's a first person context because I'm asking the question. I avoid wording questions like, have you had sexual contact you've not told your wife about? 
Uh, we want to stay away from questions that include the spouse's name uh, because they're emotionally evoking. And I, and I think that, that contributes to uh, a higher error rate. But the questions can also cover, have you had sexual contact with men? Have you had sexual contact with minors? You know, th those kinds of things, those very distinct, have you been involved with child pornography? Those are very common questions from the spouses, by the way. The spouses routinely convey to me that they think, well, you know, my husband's acted out. Is he so hypersexualized that he's out, you know, touching the kids and chasing the neighbor's farm animals and doing all sorts of crazy stuff, uh, which, you know, thankfully, <laughs> doesn't, we don't think that happens, but or we hope it doesn't. Um, but that's a very common concern from the spouses. And so that is another issue that comes up when we talk about sexual contact with minors. It's a very common request. I get that from the spouses all the time. I am not a mandatory reporter. Occasionally, these kinds of disclosures are rare, but they do occur. And it's not necessarily the client's own children, but usually minors that they had sexual contact with when they were, you know, young adults, that kind of thing. You know, 16, 17-year-old girlfriend when they were 18, 19, 20. But when I get those kinds of disclosures that may be potentially illegal, uh, I sanitize the report. Uh, so the report only lists the client's age, the possible victim's age, what happened, how many times. There's no other identifying information uh, in the report uh, so that if those that kind of thing has happened, then the client can work on it with their treatment provider as necessary. Okay. Well, this has been so helpful and such great information. I appreciate you spending some time with us this morning and sharing your expertise. And I know when you and I worked together, it's been a year or so, but it was a good experience and I appreciate your support in that. And hopefully we can work together again. If I have a local one that I'm doing, Stephanie and I see clients all over the country. And a lot of times our disclosures are done somewhere else, but I appreciate you spending some time with us and sharing your expertise and any final words that you would add? No, it's, it's my pleasure. And I appreciate you offering me the opportunity to talk about clinical polygraph utility. Hopefully it's insightful to your audience or whether those other treatment providers or spouses who may be involved in helping these kinds of situations where we have a couple who's in recovery and the polygraph, it might have utility, but Again, it, the polygraph should not be rushed. It's one of those things that's very case by case. And I do staffings with therapists all over the country pretty routinely. So if you ever have any polygraphic questions or want to staff a, a particular case or scenario, you know, pick up the phone, give me a call. Uh, I don't charge for that. It's just something that we want to make sure that if we're going to proceed, we want to do it right. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely have your information in our show notes for any other clinicians or clients that might want to use your services. And we appreciate you again so much giving us your time this morning to give our audience a taste of what this piece of the formal disclosure can look like. So thank you so much for being with us, Wes. And to our audience, we hope to see you in our episode next week. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Choosing to Stay podcast. If you have enjoyed this show, we invite you to subscribe, share, and leave us a review. Connection, empathy, and growth. Choosing to stay.